last week considered the last 10 years of Door of Hope. Door of Hope just celebrated its 10-year anniversary, and we kind of looked back, and we looked back at God's faithfulness uh, the, uh, through the ups and downs of our history. And there have been ups and downs, but in all of it, uh, we've come to the conclusion that the only explanation for why we're all sitting here today is because of God's providence, of His hand of grace upon our community. Today, um, we're going to be looking forward. And, you know, I was actually having a lot of anxiety about this sermon because there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of conversations right now about the future of Door of Hope and how do we best utilize uh, the properties that God has blessed us with uh, now that we're in this building and as we are. We know uh, we, know we want to move forward uh, with um, sending uh, Cam and Susanna and a team to plant into our building in Northeast on 9th and Fremont. Uh, but the details around that are still being kind of thought through as an elder team. Uh, and uh, there's just a lot, of, a lot of components. And I started realizing, okay, Lord, what is it really, uh, what is it that the church needs as we look forward for the next 10 years? What, what is it that we need to be anchored in? And I realized that it was based upon an email that Tom sent me about, about coming back to the why of what we do. Uh, why does Door of Hope exist? For what purpose do we exist? What is it that we're trying to achieve as a church? And the Lord brought me to a very specific message. It was actually the first message I ever preached at Door of Hope. And I felt like he told me that that's the message that I need to give today because it was a, it's a return to the why and it actually is the heartbeat of what I pray happens in the future. If we can get the, the first slide up. This passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, is the first message that I ever preached at Door of Hope. And these four words continue to be, for me, the center. They are the equilibrium uh, by which I function as a pastor, uh, and I believe has continued to be the center in the equilibrium of our church. And when we drift from this is when we lose our center. The words of the Apostle Paul is, we preach Christ crucified. Those are the four words that I believe wield absolute authority in the believer's life. They are the key to understanding why it is that we even exist as a church. Because I've been praying a lot about, what is it that I'm, I, I would love to see our community known for? And, and I was thinking, there's these kind of phrases that just kept coming to mind, like radical grace. But radical grace is being a community that preaches Christ crucified. That we would be a community that is marked by vulnerability. I received this really beautiful email this week that was thanking me for my confessional style preaching. Uh, and I realized that that is a huge value for me, is that I believe that in our brokenness, our glitchiness, in our sinfulness, in our mixture... Uh, our salvation is not based upon what we have done, but what God has done for us. We preach Christ crucified because the cross is the thing that puts all of us on an even playing field. Our absolute need for God's grace moment by moment. That we can't save ourselves, but God in his love and his mercy sent his son. So that vulnerability is a value because I think that as a church community we do an incredible disservice 
and become uh, something that actually becomes offensive to those outside of the faith when we aren't real about our own brokenness and our own absolute neediness for the goodness of Jesus. Childlike wonder is a value to me as a church leader, as a follower of Jesus. Of, and once again, childlike wonder is the outflow of being a community that preaches Christ crucified. That is, that we are a people that understand the gospel when it says, Jesus says, let the little children come to me for of such is the kingdom of heaven. He says, unless you become like a little child, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That we, like little kids, cast ourselves in total dependence upon our good father. We preach Christ and him crucified. I think of the words of Jesus, and my father's house shall be called a house of prayer. And once again, that's a massive value for me. But even being a house of prayer, what does it mean to be a house of prayer? Does it mean that we all pray exactly the same way? No, being a house of prayer means that we are a community, a family of men and women, boys and girls who are in communion with the living God. And that communion flows out of the fact that we preach Christ crucified because for those that are perishing, it is foolishness, but for those of us who have met the living Christ, it is power. It's our communion. I believe a value for me is that we would be a spirit-filled community, but here's the thing. Being spirit-filled is not being weird. The gospel is plenty strange enough. We don't have to add to that. Uh, being spirit-filled means that we are under the Spirit's control. And what we need to understand first and foremost is that the Spirit is a missionary spirit who wants to proclaim Christ crucified through our lives. That's what it means to be spirit-filled. And so uh, no matter what I looked at in my desires for the church, it always found itself anchored in this passage. These four words. And so I want us to consider these words today because the question that I continually pose to you when it comes to our witness as a community of faith I think often is driven by this idea that I need to understand everything there is to understand about the Bible before I talk about Jesus that in a city like Portland that's as progressive as secular uh, that we that we somehow feel I mean listen they, they say that that this city is is extremely unchurched and yet here we are in the heart of the city on our second service, because people are hungry for something that they can actually grab a hold of, something that will give them peace in this restless age. And the king that we declare, the Jesus that we preach, is the one that said, come to me, all you are weary, and I will give you rest. And I want us to be a community that brings peace and hope to this restless age. And we can't do that if we don't preach these words. The question that I often pose to you as a community is this, is, is do you believe that it's your responsibility to convince people to believe what we believe? And I would always argue that it is not our responsibility to convince anyone of anything that is proselytizing. What we are called to do is to introduce people to the Jesus whom we have met and know. And what that means is that we should at least come across to others as ones who believe what we are telling them we believe. In other words, 
do those whom you are in your realm of influence, whom you have conversations with about your faith, do they believe that you believe what you're telling them about Jesus? Because I think one of the reasons that Christianity often falls flat out of the lips of, so, of Jesus' so-called followers is that his followers don't know his voice and they're not following him. But what Paul tells us here is here's the key. Here's the center. Here is the anchor for our existence. It is these four words. And so I want to just walk us through these four words uh, because this continues to be my center uh, as, as a pastor at Door of Hope and I pray our center as a community. The first word is we. And this is, speaks to plurality. Paul doesn't say, I preach Christ crucified even though he was an incredibly capable evangelist and started churches everywhere that he went. But in writing his letter to the church in Corinth, he says, we preach Christ crucified, which tells us that every single person in the body of Christ has a part to play in the proclamation of this powerful message. It's not good advice, it's good news. It's good news about something that has happened for you outside of you. It's good news about a God who loves so much that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We are the ones who communicate this message and that we, how do we preach that message? Through what we do and through what we say, through how we live, through how we use our hands, through how we use our lips. Every aspect of our life is to point others, is meant to point others to this new reality by which all other realities hinge. And so I love this because this tells us something really powerful about evangelism because in, in many of your minds, you get hung up because you think that the responsibility of the evangelist is to be able to communicate the gospel like Billy Graham. But let me just tell you that the power of Billy Graham's message is that he had one message because an evangelist doesn't have the right to create a new message because there is one message that is being given. And he shared that one. Any preacher is epic when they only give one sermon. Okay? But that's not what Paul means when he says we preach Christ crucified. Because the we is just that, that reality that the entire community of faith, every time we come together as a people, there is power in the presence of God in the midst of his people. Jesus said, when two or more gather in my name, I am there in the midst of them. I think we forget the supernatural reality of the gospel. It's not just words declared by someone who has the gift of oratory. It is, it is words that are declared with power and influenced by the Spirit who alone draws hearts to King Jesus. And so when we come together as a community, when you come ready to receive what it is the Spirit has to say, when you come with the joy of the gospel at the center of your existence, that is what is compelling to those who sit outside of the faith. It's when they experience the love of Christ being manifested in the body of Christ that makes the message all that much more compelling. It's not the winsomeness of the pastor or the intellectual capacity of the communicator, but it is the spiritual illumination that comes through the message proclaimed and the message received. And so I would just encourage you guys, this is when I, one of the things that I believe would could change, actually begin to push Portland toward a spiritual tipping point, 
that could actually move us toward real revival is if we actually all took seriously this incredible responsibility as well as privilege to introduce people to the king. And all that means, in my mind, for many of you, would just be simply, who is it in your life would you like to have come and experience what it is that you believe by just inviting them to church? What if every empty seat in this place was filled with a brother, a sister, a mother, a father, a co-worker, a friend, a neighbor that doesn't know Jesus, and you know, one of the things, what do we create a space like this for? We want to honor God in our creative abilities, of course, but really God is honored when we actually take seriously this missionary posture, which is that this space, God's house, will be a house of prayer, which means a place where people actually experience communion with the living Christ. And what we want to do is invite those whom Jesus died for to come in and experience the grace that is already theirs. They just don't know it yet. We want to open their eyes up to the fact that God loves them. But why would they come if they've never been invited? Why would they come and experience the gospel if they've never seen the evidence of the gospel in your own life? Because one who's been truly transformed by the gospel of grace can't help but talk about the gospel of grace. Now here's the thing. Paul is very clear when he says in Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And here's the fact, is that that reality, when he says I am not ashamed, he wouldn't say that unless it was the natural default setting of the human heart and its fallenness to be ashamed. Because there is power in the name of Jesus. It's the name of Jesus that actually makes people uncomfortable. You can talk about God all day long. That's, that's almost a meaningless word. Uh, but... Here we have this incredible statement. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. You know that every great revival, every great, like, outdoor preaching, when you look at the great festival, when you even look at, like, guys like John Wesley or George Whitfield or Billy Graham, the reason that so many come to a saving knowledge of Jesus is because it's not like it's the preacher and a sea of non-believers. It's a preacher in a sea of believers who have brought non-believers with them. And I believe it's the power of the gospel being presented by the entire community of faith in one place, expecting God to move in power. As John Tyson wisely said last week, the more secular our age becomes, the more we need a supernatural approach to the gospel of Jesus. So, if it begins with we, it moves to this. We preach. If we could move to the next one, yeah. So this word, preach, this is a powerful word. This is a word that, that, that often intimidates us because we think of preach as the ability to articulate intelligently what the gospel actually is. Let me just tell you a, a quick story. When I first got saved, that's why I like to refer to myself as the amateur pastor. Uh, I have no credentials to speak of. What I do know is that when I was 27... I got radically saved. And that radical salvation led to me experiencing the beauty of who Jesus is and his grace in such a way that all I could do was tell people about what happened to me. I didn't have all the answers. I didn't have this, you know, theological grid. I hadn't read through systematic theology yet. Um, and, and, 
in fact, all I had was the very innocent zeal of one who was lost but is now found. And what's fascinating is that within a year of becoming a Christian, I was seeing people come to faith through that testimony. I remember specifically telling my, I had a producer that was working on a record with me. Uh, his name is Dylan. He goes by Dynamite D. Uh, amazing guy. He's done stuff for the Beastie Boys and, and a, just a bunch of really cool stuff. Incredible, incredible producer and DJ. And um, I just, he's recording me, so he was stuck with me every day. And I was a relatively new believer, so I just kept sharing with him what I was reading. And by the end of the week of recording, I remember we were sitting at his house after we finished tracking, and he goes, man, I feel, I've just been feeling like this weird pull all week. Like, I, I want what you have. And I'm like, well, you can. I, I think, I think all you have to do is just like, I mean, I don't know. I keep praying that Jesus will save me every day because I'm still not totally sure it's worked yet. But I think that's all you've got to do with me is, I mean, I'm always up for praying it again in case it didn't work the first time. But, but even then, like the gospel, that, that gospel reality of, of just, of the simplicity of the gospel that, that Jesus actually loves you. And I was able to tell them, Jesus loves you. He wants to make himself known to you. All I can say is something happened in me where I felt lost and now I feel found. There's a desire. I feel like there's, I was created for something bigger than myself. I agreed with Chesterton that the world seemed to be full of magic, and if it's full of magic, there must be a magician. The world is telling a story, then behind that story, there must be a storyteller. And I remember, I go, so do you want to pray? And at that point, it was like we both got so nervous, and I was like, <laughs> I'm like, and then I realized I didn't actually know what to tell him to pray, um, because there is no actual sinner's prayer in the scripture, but I was pretty sure, I'm like, I don't know, I think all we need to pray is just like, forgive me, come into my heart, I think if I remember correctly, make me new, and, uh, and then, I don't know, thank you, <laughs> and uh, so we, we prayed that, and there was like this incredible peace that came over the room. We preach Christ crucified, the church is a community of a message. The preaching is a herald. It's the decisive prerequisite for the office was the ability and readiness to give the message exactly as it's commissioned. And this is why I put profession. It's a profession of faith, but it's also the internal occupation of the believer. Because even when we spend eternity with, with God and the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth and the new kingdom has come, we will continue to profess the goodness of Jesus. We will continue to profess his love. That's what it means to be worshipers of him. It's to be a people that are so surrendered to King Jesus that all we can do is, is, is express outwardly what has happened inwardly. I think that we make it very complicated, and I think that that, that unfortunately does damage. And uh, this isn't a complicated thing. Romans ten fourteen says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? You guys, you and I have a responsibility to introduce people to the king. And this is why it doesn't just say we preach, but we preach not an ideology, we preach personality. We preach Christ. Now, I love that Paul establishes this, that we're not offering up another religion to the world. 
What we are offering to people is something that is unique to the gospel, and that is actual relationship. You remember what I always like to declare is that the scripture declares that sin has entered into the human into the human existence in such a way that it has destroyed relationship in three directions. It has destroyed our relationship with God, which has in turn affected our ability to relate to one another, and it has made our, our ability to understand ourselves an absolute enigma. That is what sin does. It destroys relationship. Even the concept of a, a biblical understanding of hell is, as George MacDonald said it, it hell's principle is... I am my own. It's the it's total isolation. It's the refusal of restoration of relationship. It is the impossible possibility to reject the God who loves you. To reject the restoration of relationship in those three directions. But the gospel is something utterly beautiful because what we are introducing people to is the possibility of restored relationship. It's not even the possibility. We are actually introducing people to the fact of God's finished work through his son, Jesus. That what we are declaring to the world is not amb ambiguity. We're not talking about a God in an, am in an, in an ambiguous way who loves everyone. Um, but we're talking about a God who has made himself known through his son. In fact, Hebrews chapter 1 declares it very concisely. It says, God at various times in various ways has spoken to us through the prophets and through the scriptures. But he says, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. Jesus is the final word of the father. Now, I want you guys to think through this because this is where the nervousness of inviting people into our story of faith comes. Because it is, and it's one of the things that actually caused me to come to faith to begin with, which is the name of Jesus, for whatever reason, and I think there's a very specific reason, I think it's because there's power in the name, it is the name that creates discomfort like no other name. It, it is a fascinating thing. When I was exploring faith, I remember I was like interested in Hinduism and Buddhism. And I remember specifically one night I was at the Crocodile Cafe and I was sitting with a group of musicians. And this is like the beginning of me on my journey of like trying to figure out. I was having this existential crisis. I was, I, was, I was freaked out by the reality of death. I was freaked out by the fact that I wasn't going to be the famous rock musician that I thought I would be. I just lost. I mean, here I am at only at whatever, 26, 27, and I'm, I've already lost my record deal. And I'm like, my career's over. Um, and, I, and, and that kind of drove me into this place of, of beginning to explore. There's got to be something more because I can't ride upon the possibility of a dream that probably isn't going to come true as the only means to any sort of internal happiness. And I found that the closer I got to actually fulfilling my dreams, the more unhappy I became. And so, uh, so that put me on this journey. I remember sitting at the Crocodile Cafe, and, I, and we were talking, and someone, I was talking with, a, with, a, with an artist um, who is actually a pretty well-known uh, folk singer and extremely well-read. And we love to talk about books, and he, he said, like, Josh, what are you reading right now? And that, that began this very, like, casual, I tried to do this kind of, like, um, I'm like, I've been exploring theological ideas lately. <laughs> and then he goes, like, like what? And then, I, and then I just felt kind of uncovered, and I just thought, 
might as well just ask him since I'm looking at him. I mean, how bad can it get? And I said, I, I don't know. I was just curious, guys. What do you guys think about Jesus? <laughs> Seriously. It was like I pulled my pants down in front of everybody. It was insane. <laughs> like, there was, like, the response was, like, from, from there was the snicker, the, the, like, oh, my gosh. Like, what? And then there was, like, the, like, one girl was just, like, <gasps> Like, just turned in horror, like, oh my gosh, did he just say the J word at the table? And it was, it was like it sucked the air out of the room, and then, and then I was like, yeah, right, it's like, silly. Anyway. Uh, but you know what's fascinating is I left, and, I, and what struck me was that I, that actually is what caused me to begin to read the New Testament, because I couldn't figure out why there was so much hostility toward the idea of Jesus, and I knew, like, the basic... The basic argument, well, the church has done so many bad, so many bad things have been done in the name of Jesus. Honestly, I do not believe there is an adequate reason for the intensity that the name Jesus brings out of people. Uh, there is no, like, natural reason. I'm, you could say that about any religion, things done horribly in the name of that particular faith. But there is something about the name of Jesus that stirs discomfort like I've never seen. And it doesn't matter where you're at in the world either. And I think that it's because there's power in the name. And when I began to read through the Gospels, what I found is that the people that were really critical of, of Jesus and seemed to be so horrified by his name, it didn't make sense because the more I read about him, the more I fell in love with him. The more I was like, there's nobody like this. I kind of came to the place that E. Stanley Jones did when he said, if Jesus is fabricated by man... I have to worship the people that created him. Because in him, we see what man is and how far we've fallen. Because in him, we see what God is and how far we may rise. And this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Because to preach Jesus, why is the name of Jesus so offensive? Part of it is because of the exclusiveness of that name because we say that Jesus is the only way and that is offensive to our sensibilities that's offensive to modern sensibilities it's even often offensive to those that believe it and but we need to understand this is that to preach Jesus I always say that that the narrowness of our message is the gateway to the vastness of our God that if every key opened the door to salvation the house would not be safe and so we have to recognize that when we're introducing people, to, what does it mean that we preach Christ? I just think that, I think a better framing, I think proselytizing is a horrible word that comes with it, this kind of like forceful, trying to force people to believe what you believe. I don't think that it's helpful. I think even evangelizing, all of evangel means it's just good news. It's good newsing. <laughs> it's sharing good news. Uh, but I think in, in many ways it's, it's lost its Meaning, because in, in our American context, we think of evangelical, and all of a sudden it becomes a political statement. But if we think in terms of introducing people to the one who is with us. And so, you know, I, I, I always say that when I bring my wife into a room and I meet a stranger, it'd be rude for me to not introduce people to her. And Jesus says, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. My sheep hear my voice, they know me and they follow me. He goes on to say that, he goes, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, I'm not, I mean, don't take that too far. I don't want you to go talk to a stranger. It's like go to the coffee shop up here on Belmont after church and be like, 
Hi, how are you? What's your name? I'd like you to meet my friend Jesus. Don't do that. That'll be weird um, and uncomfortable. But the idea, the reality of Christ's presence in our lives by his spirit should inspire us. That Jesus said, it's good that I go to my father because if I go to my father, I will send to you another helper, the spirit of truth. And when he comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will bring to remembrance the things that I have said. He will convict the world of sin and of judgment and of righteousness. And the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives is this, is that what we need as a church is that if we want to be a, a community that is vulnerable, if a community that rests in the radical grace of Christ, if we want to be a community that, that is a house of prayer, a place of communion, if we want to be a community that lives with childlike wonder, we need to be a community that is submitted to the Spirit of God in such a way that the Spirit of God blows us out into the street like Pentecost because too many of you are living afraid in the upper room. And that's not how we need to live as a Christian community. We need to fall into that place where the more we fall in love with Him, we can't help but talk about Him. We talk to others about Him and we invite them into our community to come and experience the gospel that has changed our lives. And if you don't feel comfortable doing that, the question that I would just ask gently, praying that God by his grace will, I'm not interested in creating a new ladder for you to climb, because that's what the gospel saves us from, is our own weak human effort and our inability to save ourselves, is that we are to introduce people to the one who saved us because we were not capable of saving ourselves. We're the first to admit that we're not bigger failures than God already knows we are. That's why we need the gospel. And so we introduce people to the king because Jesus is the door. The door that opens up our life to, to meaning, to home, to belonging. Because he's the way. Because he is the truth. He is the life. He is the light. He is the good shepherd. He's the bread. One of the issues I see with the church today is that the church doesn't like plain bread. And we think we've got to dress Jesus up to make him more palatable for modern sensibilities. So offensive. Let Jesus be Jesus. And you be a conduit. Which brings me to the final word. We don't just simply introduce people to the king. There are lots of churches that talk about Jesus as a good teacher. But they deny his deity. And they deny his sacrifice. And that is why Paul is very clear to say... We preach Christ crucified. For the person, we must consider his perfect work, his perfection. And the perfection is wrapped up in the cross. We can't talk about resurrection because resurrection insinuates first death. And this is why the cross is the center of the gospel. The atonement of Christ on the cross, says Paul Zoll, is the mechanism by which God's grace can be offered freely and without condition to strugglers in the battle of life. The grace of God assumes the lowest, I like this, possible reading of our anthropology. The world's problem with grace is that it's unfair. It's unfair. It's why we don't like it when we hear stories of a guy like Ted Bundy, the day before he's executed, receiving Jesus into his heart. And you're like, that's not right. He's a horrible man. He does not deserve grace neither do you that's the power of the gospel that's why the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing that's why it's offensive 
to our sensibilities because it says that none of us are worthy of God's salvation and none of us are capable of reaching God in our own effort. When I say that the gospel, actually, the grace of God assumes the lowest possible reading of our anthropology, I'm drawing directly from the reformers. And that is that the, the, the threefold reality, uh, as Paul Zoll points out so brilliantly in his book, Grace in Everyday Practice, is that first there is the reality of original sin. Our rejection of God's rule over our lives, our desire for autonomy and a refusal of his grace. That reality is played out in every single person here, past, present, and future. It is the problem which leads us to that second doctrine of total depravity. And what I mean by total depravity is not that everything you do is bad. It means that every good thing you do is still mixture. Everything has been infiltrated by this unfortunate thing we call sin. That the third reality is that that leads to what Martin Luther said is what he called the unfree will. The unfree will means that because as in our brokenness, in our sinfulness, and it's not that Luther was trying to say that you don't have the freedom to do things in life. He's saying that we are bound in sin which makes it incapable of us to reach God in our own effort. He wasn't interested in how does free will work in regards to daily living. He was interested in, in the dimension toward God and God's dimension toward us. And what he said is that, listen, you are bound in sin is what scripture declares, which means it requires God to reach down and save us. We can't save ourselves. This is why the gospel is so counterintuitive. This is why it's not like any other religion. For every religion says, live like this and God will accept you. And it gives you a list of things to do. But the gospel says, God has already accepted you in Jesus. Now live like this. Live free in the grace of God. The radical grace of God. I like what Robert Farrar Capone says, because this is what the cross speaks to me. And this is even really, it's, it's not a theological shift for me. It's just a new emphasis upon the radical grace of Jesus. And I love what Capone says in between noon and three. He says, if he refused to condemn you because your works were rotten, he certainly isn't going to flunk you because your faith isn't so hot. You can fail utterly, therefore, and still live the life of grace. You can fold up spiritually, morally, or intellectually and still be safe. Because at the very worst, all you can be is dead. And for him who is the resurrection and the life, that just makes you his cup of tea. <laughs> what a powerful proclamation. It reminds us of how unfair, how counterintuitive grace is. Because grace declares that every one of us are absolutely incapable, incompetent, impotent in creating our own salvation. We can't climb a ladder tall enough to get to God. And we don't need more ladders in the church either. What we need is grace every time. Which means we need to be a community that continues to say we preach Christ crucified. Because when we preach Christ crucified, it puts us all in the same place. We're inviting sinners to come in and hang out with sinners who have experienced God's gracious forgiveness. You know what's fascinating is that when, and I'll close with this, when Luis Palau came here, a lot of us have a lot of, a lot of ideas around why evangelism is so hard for the church and what, what causes us, what keeps us from speaking the word to people in love. 
to tell them about this Jesus. And we think it's because we do have to have the answers. Because we live in a post-Christian age and you can't use words like sin any longer without giving them an explanation. How many of you were here for Good Friday? Most of you? Okay. Luis broke every rule, if that's true. His message was not linear. He talked about sin. He talked about an airplane to heaven and hell. Who gets away with that? Luis does, and everyone's like, even people, uh, it was just fascinating, because people were like, oh my gosh, he's so, he's so charming. And it was like, he broke all these rules. But the thing that was so compelling about his message, he gave three points, and, and in those three points was just a series of, of stories of how grace has intersected with people's lives around him and intersected with his own life. And the three, the three things that he said was just, were so simple and so profound in the thing that we all need to remember. What was it? He said, first of all, that Jesus comes, why? To set the captives free. To bind up the broken. To bring healing to our broken souls. This was coming out of the lips of a man who's dying of cancer right now and probably won't be with us for another six months. It's compelling when a man who's dying of cancer says, Jesus has healed me. Then he goes on to say, Jesus comes to give you forgiveness of sins. And everybody, whether you can define it theologically or not, we, we kind of know what sin is. And we don't need people to tell us that we're sinners because we all know we're broken. We all know we need help. That we can't seem to achieve the ideal that we so, we, we're told constantly by the world that we can achieve. That's why people are so anxious today. We never get to our enoughness. He says, listen, Jesus forgives you. And then finally he says, Jesus came to bring you to God. And then at the end he said, hey, let's pray. And, if, and I want you to pray a prayer with me. And then at the end he said, how many of you prayed that prayer for the first time, invited Jesus into your lives? And I counted at least 20 hands on the main floor. And this is what this told me about the gospel, is that we're so convinced that we've got to cross all our T's and dot all our I's and have every explanation. Why do we do that? It's because we don't believe that it is the Spirit who saves people. Jesus said, nobody comes to me unless the Father draws him. And it would release a lot of pressure on yourselves if you would just accept that when you are willing to be a conduit for King Jesus, the Holy Spirit does the majority of the heavy lifting. We need a supernatural approach to the gospel today, guys. We need to be a community that walks in this radical grace, that recognizes that we're broken, that recognizes our need. And we need to be a people that say again and again, we preach Christ crucified. The future of our church depends on these four words. Because our church growth strategy is not transfer growth. Our church growth strategy is bringing the gospel to the lost throughout the city. And you and I together have a part to play in that awesome, amazing, beautiful, messy work. May we be the community of faith that presents King Jesus and him crucified every week, every day. Amen? Let's pray.